From WPVM LP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Lexi Harvey is away this month, so you're stuck with me. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Orla Gartland.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, head to dirty-spoon.com. If you've listened to this show much, then you know that we don't really do themes here at the Dirty Spoon. We never put out calls for stories about things like, what did, what would your death row meal be, or tell us about your family heirloom recipes. Instead, we leave the pool wide open for whatever kind of stories people want to send us. I like it that way. We get a wide variety of stories, and people get to talk about what they want to talk about. It keeps things fresh, varied, vibrant. But every now and then, the themes come up naturally. Everyone that submits a story seems to be on the same page. Well, today is one of those days, and the theme seems to be one of family. Whether it's surviving the pandemic by indulging in fast food with your kids, reveling in the kindness of your neighbors, a chosen family of sorts, or looking back on your mother's cooking in hard times, today is all about the big messy family. When the COVID-19 lockdowns took place, writer Lori Barrett found herself stuck at home with her kid, sent back from college. But this time, we're not going to bring you a story about how home-cooked meals brought them closer together, or how they bonded over grandma's banana bread recipe. Instead, their connection came through the drive through window. I drove through the drizzle with my youngest, Stella, in the passenger seat. Normally, we would have been stopping and starting on this street in Lakeview, Chicago, as cars around us turned, braked, and merged into the lane in front of us. On this day, the road was ours. Parking lots at the drugstore, the liquor store, and FedEx were mostly empty. We watched for signs of life on the sidewalks. We passed two people in oversized hazmat suits, spraying the sidewalks, the storefronts, the parked cars. With what? Neither of us spoke. Stay at home, said the voice on the radio. The night before, Stella announced a craving, a crunch wrap supreme from Taco Bell. You're living with a college student now, they said. When their campus closed down in the gray days of 2020, Stella was forced to come home, to passively attend classes on a laptop and actively pursue busyness, baking bread, crocheting, doing jigsaw puzzles. I would come home from my job as an essential worker and I'd eat meals she'd prepared. Like a vegetarian curry they'd mastered with the dining co-op on a campus or a roasted chicken they found on YouTube. I tried to help pass the empty time when I could. We dyed our hair, learned a TikTok dance, walked the dog along the lakefront. We drove to visit their brother Henry on the other side of Chicago. It was fun for me. I'd missed their music in the background of my days. I'd missed their surprising and colorful thrift store ensembles. I'd missed the sound every morning of their footsteps on the stairs and the way our dog perked up when he heard it. But as with many young adults sent to their parents' homes, this felt like punishment. On campus, Stella had independence, crushes, and best friends. They stayed out late without asking permission, sometimes walking through the rural college town with friends after drinking for a Crunchwrap Supreme or a crispy buttermilk chicken sandwich from McDonald's. And they still made the dean's list. So on this day during quarantine, we leave home for what Stella craves. I park illegally in front of the sleek metal and glass Taco Bell and leave my flashers on. Two masked people stand inside waiting for their food. 
We order, trying to be heard through our masks while maintaining six feet from the person at the counter. The hot sauce is no longer in a bin for customers to dig through. We have to request it. Then we retreat to the back wall to wait. I wonder if the pedestrians walking by think us selfish or stupid, or both, for leaving home for fast food. I'd argue it's not selfish or stupid, but self-care. In late February, a few weeks before spring break, Stella texted to say they were going camping for spring break instead of coming home. It broke my heart, and it made me proud. Stella's high school years were spent in and out of therapy programs. Depression and anxiety kept them in their room watching reruns of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, while their peers hung out with friends, clubs, or teams until the evening, and then spent their weekends with friends. At the dining room table with our Taco Bell meal combos surrounded by wrappers and packets of hot sauce, I swallowed my worries about fingers that have touched the packaging. Experts said it's unlikely to get the virus by ingestion anyway. Stella pulled out their phone and took a selfie with her Crunchwrap Supreme with a smile that looked real. Moon and Bella got Taco Bell today, too, they said, momentarily connected with their favorite people through the magic of fast food. We made a plan to go to McDonald's the following week. Andrea Nunn reading Lori Barrett's story, Individually Wrapped Togetherness. You can find it and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. With a push of a button, I'm holding a breath, pulling it
For kids growing up, social status is just a concept they learn. They certainly aren't born with it. It's just a fuzzy thing for most of them, just off in the periphery. Money isn't an object of value for most kids, so it usually takes some time or some kind of experience for them to start to understand where their family stands on the social ladder. When you talk to most adults, they can usually tell you the moment when they realize their family was either rich or poor. And for a great many of them, it usually has something to do with food. My grandmother was never one to complain about food. She always smiled and accepted whatever she was given. But I do recall one time when she mentioned not liking the spaghetti casserole that one woman routinely brought to her church potluck. Struck by how rare it was for her to turn down someone's home cooking, I pressed her on the matter, and she revealed that she did not like that the woman used ketchup in her pasta sauce. It reminded her of hard times when she had to stretch her food with ketchup. My father recalls stories of her sitting down to the dinner table with him, only to find that she was eating a piece of cold cheese between bread. She'd given him the meat. Looking back on his life as a child with a house full of brothers, writer Chris Carbar remembers how the humble foods his mother made got the whole family through the tough times. Like other kids we knew, my four brothers, Johnny, B.B., Kurt, Paul, and I, grew up with a steady diet of Vienna sausages, those half-size mystery meat wieners that come in very small cans. They filled up our stomachs and tasted really good with bacon-flavored pork and beans. It never dawned on us that eating those fake wieners, as well as on occasion the real Oscar Mayer type, though usually a lesser-known brand, essentially put our family in the category of poor or crackers or some other less-than-pleasant phrase. Vienna sausages were simply a stalwart staple of our weekly fare for most of our formative years. These and similar items belong to the culinary genre of Vienna sausage and such. The such included saltine crackers, rice, noodles, jello, canned fish, and other belly-filling but not too costly foodstuffs. Bologna fell somewhere in the category. It was also some nondescript type of meat that we could eat at any meal. My grandfather fried it at breakfast and called it Georgia Round Steak. It was good with a bowl of grits. It also appeared on sandwiches for lunch or dinner, always on that gooey white bread that had been stripped of any healthy nutrients. This rubbery meat was not one of my favorites, but I tried to camouflage its taste with lots of my favorite condiment, just plain yellow mustard. Mama Lou, our mother, stretched cans of salmon and tuna a long way in order to feed five hungry boys. She picked out all the bones from salmon and mixed it with various breadcrumbs, such as old toast and crushed saltine crackers. She added an egg or two to keep the ingredients glued together. She shaped the mixture into patties, added lots of salt and pepper, and then threw them into the frying pan. Sometimes we would actually taste the salmon it depended on the fish-to-crumb ratio. With canned tuna, Mama Lou mixed lots and lots of noodles and a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup. She then baked it in the oven and topped it with crushed saltine crackers during the last 15 minutes. They were browned, sometimes almost blackened. It was a meal to itself, and it was a standard for covered dish suppers at churches, usually dressed up with brown potato chips in lieu of saltines. Besides salmon and tuna, there was the baked fish stick, 
a weekly feature of our school fair. The cooks served them in recognition of the then no-meat-on-Friday practice of Catholic students. Many times they seemed to be more crust than fish. No one was able to identify the type of fish. Most of us just ate whatever it was, loaded with lots of ketchup, without any serious questioning or of genotype or phenotype. Some students who did not like them would fling them across the cafeteria at other students. The throwing took on a look of a battle between two sides, sometimes with at least 20 missiles in the air. Such battles became intensified when the school district received a large donation of government surplus black olives, occupying one of the five sections on every school's cafeteria plates. No one had ever eaten them, and as a result, they joined the fish sticks as immediate weapons during lunch. The truth about fish is that my brothers and I would not have been able to recognize tilapia, cod, trout, orange roughy, salmon, tuna, or any other fresh fish if it was laid out on a table in front of us. We knew of fish only as the encrusted or casseroled versions. Mama Lou turned a three-pound package of ground hamburger into numerous meals, most of them also in the and such category. Since all of us like spaghetti, she fried the hamburger, threw in some onions, bell peppers, and then doused all of it with an ample amount of tomato sauce. She served it on a very large bed of spaghetti, creating a noodle nirvana. We could hardly devour it quickly enough. Meatloaf, like salmon patties, could be highly laden with bread or saltine cracker crumbs glued together by an egg or two. Like the spaghetti, the bell peppers and onions were plentiful, and the tomato sauce topping off everything was delicious. A variation on the same theme was Spanish rice. Mama Lou cooked the hamburger, mixed in a lot of rice and tomato sauce, and topped it with a very orange cheese-like product. She made it in two iron skillets so that she could move it from the stove to the oven in order to melt the topping. A little touch of mashed up hamburger was always saved to mix chili powder and some ketchup to create hot dog chili. Throw in a little salt and pepper and there was no hot dog sauce as good. It could disguise the most off-brand of all wieners, especially if loaded down with mustard and pickle relish. Finally, if there was some hamburger left, it was used in soup. Mama Lou took a big pan and fried the leftover meat and then put in all the leftover vegetables, canned or fresh, lots of water and added tomato sauce. It was always tasty. The amount of water in the soup, the amount of rice in the Spanish rice, as well as the amount of crumbs in the meatloaf or salmon patties were always indications of our financial status. The watered-down issue was also present in our weekly soup from the Campbell's collection. Mamalu never mixed just one can of water. It was always at least two, depending on the presence of one or more unexpected guests. We were not density experts, but we did recognize that the tomato soup especially tended to be more pinkish than red on occasion. But buttered and toasted saltine crackers were always good with any soup. We knew to eat and to be thankful. 
Chipped beef and gravy on toast was a dreaded meal, usually at supper. It had an array of aliases, including one from the military, where it was referred to as something on a shingle. Use your alliterative imagination. The gravy was a glue-like substance of flour and milk and lots of pepper. The pink beef was so thin that it was almost invisible and also tasteless. It came packaged in a small jar and was stretched to its limits for my four brothers and me. We did not appreciate it in the least. However, it did meet the goal to fill up our stomachs. Mama Lou always tried to present it in a tolerable fashion, like cutting the toast into various geometric designs, even spelling out the name of our youngest brother, Paul, but she never fooled any of us. We ate it anyway. We had fried chicken every Sunday, rarely the whole chicken itself, but more frequently legs or wings. I liked both of them. Mama Lou floured them and gave them a good dose of salt and pepper, then let them sit during church services. When we returned home, she cooked them slowly until they were crispy, and she made delicious gravy to put on the rice. She had one bottle of mazzola oil used only for frying chicken and salmon patties. All other cooking oil was bacon grease. It was essential because Mama Lou used it for frying okra and squash to flavor colored greens, green beans, and very large pots of pinto beans. And to make cornbread, always served with the pinto beans. Her large coffee can full of bacon grease was mirrored in all the homes we knew. It was just a common practice. The very colorful jello, also in the such category, occupied a position of importance in our household. Sometimes it was considered a fruit, lemons, limes, cherries, and on occasion it did include actual fruit, such as apples or canned pineapple or pears. At other meals it became a vegetable, loaded with shredded carrots or cucumber slices, particularly tasty with the lime version. Any flavor with a dollop of whipped cream on it was instantly converted into a dessert. It was truly a versatile component in our culinary universe. On a daily basis, Mama Lou prepared meals and served us the best Vienna sausage and such that she could afford. As children, we were used to it and ate it without question. It always seemed tasty except the chipped beef, and we happily consumed it, many times asking for seconds. We knew of no other types of meals until much later in our lives. Zen Sutherland reading Chris Carbaugh's Vienna Sausages and Such. You can find it and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
In the 700-plus pages of Emily Post's tome, Etiquette, she dives into nearly every aspect of our social interactions to analyze and offer advice on the best way to behave in each scenario. While most of the book deals with manners at the dinner table, how to chat with a spouse's work acquaintances, and whatnot, a surprising amount of it is dedicated to the section on death and dying, how to act at a funeral. Which makes sense when you think about when the book was published. Just four years after the end of World War I and the 1918 flu pandemic, death had personally touched the hearth of just about every home in the United States. When you read it, her advice can seem overly specific, but it really does make sense. She eschews big meals and hearty foods, but suggests toasts, tea, perhaps a poached egg, something warm, comforting, and simple. And my favorite piece of advice, don't ask them if they want something to eat, just hand them something. As she says, those who are in the greatest distress want no food, but if it is handed to them, they will mechanically take it. When writer Christine Vinzon suddenly lost her brother, she found herself falling on the kindness of a neighbor a neighbor who seems to have known Emily Post's advice. Here's Lindsay Lee reading her story, Angel Food. You nourished your people with food of angels, endowed with all delights. Wisdom 1620. There used to be a show on a cooking channel called The Best Thing I Ever Ate. Celebrity chefs and big-name foodies waxed poetic about, well, the best thing they ever ate. A hot dog made from grass-fed bison, topped with artisanal stone-ground mustard. That sort of thing. My brother was killed in an auto accident. John was six years older than me, and to this little sister, he was cool personified. Ready with quips even his teachers laughed at, and put down so funny you forgot they were insults. For his birthday, he asked for a can of cashews and a six-pack of orange crush. He slept late on Christmas morning. Too soon, John was off and running, with an ease and optimism I could only envy. First to college in Chicago, then to California, where he had a job lined up with an aerospace firm. He came back once or twice around the holidays, and to introduce his fiancée, Margaret. My folks flew out for the wedding, a simple affair, in an old mission chapel. I saw the pictures. Despite the age difference and distance, in some ways I was closer to John than to anyone else in the family. We exchanged long letters peppered with dry humor and added our own commentary to off-the-wall birthday cards. From him, I learned to love writing, also from sneaking his Sports Illustrated magazines. My three days in California for his funeral were oddly intense and emotional, a time out of time. Part of me felt like a tourist, dropping in on the life John had made for himself over the last ten years. Margaret introduced me to the kids and showed me their house in the Sierra Madre foothills and the quaint town of Solvang they called home. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters drove across states and flew cross-country. Some I hadn't seen in over a year. We talked, laughed, fell silent. We mourned John, even as we crammed each other full with the latest in our lives. Then it was over. My parents stayed to help Margaret navigate the legal maze that accompanies death. I flew back with my sister and her husband and drove home alone from O'Hare Airport. I was still living with my parents then, in the same house I, we, grew up in. My footsteps echoed on hardwood floors, Torpid July air clung like a wet woolen blanket. 
dust drifted aimlessly through slashes of sunlight as I opened the blinds. I sat outside sorting through the pile of accumulated mail. Sympathy cards kept coming. The mailman handed me a new batch, smiling, someone have a birthday? A death, actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sure he was, too, but like everyone else, only with the general human decency of strangers. Few of the neighbors remembered John. Until he died, my coworkers didn't know he existed. It's hard to grieve alone. I read a few cards, sobbed a few minutes, then, like the rest of the world, got on with life. Researching for a food science book, immersed in the complex roles of carbohydrates and candy making, I felt focused, productive. I felt I was coping. One night, a storm brought down a limb on our peach tree. I needed someone to saw it into manageable chunks to put it out as yard waste. My first thought was, is Bruce home? Bruce and Becky had been our neighbors longer than I'd been alive. If we'd been family, they would have been the poor relations. Not in the material sense. Neither of our families came from money. But where my family subscribed to Time magazine, they got Soap Opera Digest. We tucked money for school lunch in our shirt pocket. Their kids cashed checks for 50 cents at the neighborhood liquor store. We went to college and wound up with degrees. Their girls quit high school and wound up pregnant. But if the worldview was narrow, it was wide enough to include us. Bruce and Becky were the best friends they knew how to be. They invited us kids on family outings to a county fishing hole on the river. Seven bodies squeezed into seats meant for five in their old Ford sedan, serving cold pork and beans, treating us to slushies from Dairy Dream. Bruce wasn't home the morning I came calling. Becky was, watching her soaps. She invited me in, as she always did, and we talked. I told her about California, the scenery, the shops, the old mission church where the funeral was held. The more I talked, the more I wanted to. Until that afternoon, I hadn't realized how starved for talk I was. Before I left, Becky insisted I take a piece of cake. Bruce's birthday, I remembered, had been that week. It was a two-layer white cake mortared with white frosting, typical of the grocery store bakery it had come from. Her offer filled me with dread. Growing up, every food was comfort food to me. From peas to donuts, eating assuaged daily bouts of fear, failure, loneliness. Now I maintained a vigilance bordering on phobia, a recovering addict susceptible to temptation, especially when blindsided. I balked, refused, then finally accepted. Just a little piece. I'll save it for mom and dad. Becky agreed. With thoughtful restraint, she sliced a modest wedge, set it on a paper plate, and covered it in plastic wrap. Once home, I immediately exiled her well-meant gift to the freezer. My self-controlled self intended it to stay there until my parents came home. My honest-with-myself self knew that wasn't going to happen. Around midnight, I succumbed. The experience was transcendent. Chilled, the cake refreshed like a cool breeze after a summer storm. Frozen frosting melted, smooth and rich as cream on my tongue. 
eating in the quiet and dark of the house didn't feel like weakness. In every sweet and tender mouthful, I tasted friendship, tasted sharing, tasted love. My only regret when I'd finished? I wish I'd let her cut me a bigger piece. 25 years later, it's still the best piece of cake I ever ate. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, head to dirty-spoon.com.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Catherine Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Pompano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Orla Gartland, Jungle, Hemlock Springs, Ill Peach, Holy Hive and the Shacks, Richard Orofino, Rune Plum, Adam Melch, Stella, Blue Dot Sessions, Tyler Ramsey, Michael Andrews, Andrew Tuttle, Stefan Remble, John Bryan, and Ben Lovett. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I handle the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and write some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. We lost a legend in the abstract music world this month. Brian McBride of the band Stars of the Lid passed away. In his day job, he was a legendary rhetoric and debate coach, but he will always be most famous for and remembered for being the brains behind one of the best instrumental bands in ambient music history. I thought it would only be fitting for us to close out with a piece from Stars of the Lid, so you're listening to Don't Bother, They're Here. If you've never listened to this band, it's well worth listening to. I recommend checking out a record. 